This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. What he's really been able to show is how a lot of the achievements of lawmakers in that period rested on an assumption that they weren't going to address issues of African-American rights in the South. Daniel Holt is talking about Southern Nation by Ira Katz Nelson. It's a book he thinks anyone interested in congressional history should read. Some of the Southerners who we would look at as segregationists also in some t- in other cases were quite progressive in the kinds of government programs that they supported through legislation. So it's really interesting to look back at these periods and see how multifaceted members of the Senate Holt is were an assistant were Senate historian. I spoke with him recently when he stopped by the CQ Roll Call office to talk about the history of the Senate with our reporters. We hear a lot about how the Senate is different today than it was before, that it's more rancorous, that less gets done, that people don't get along as well. And I wonder, just as an historian, uh, not as a partisan, but as an historian, is the Senate, is, is it getting less done uh, or, or is this all a matter of relativity? I, I think no matter what period in time you're talking about, you're going to find divisiveness in the Senate. And you can certainly try to measure, I guess, some kind of qualitative description of how divisive it is. But I think at any time, you're going to find members who are cordial and cooperative and maintaining decorum. And you're going to also find the exact opposite. I mean, in 1859, a sitting senator gets shot to death by uh, a California judge based on his positions that he says on the Senate floor related to slavery. Um, There's many examples of, you know, rancor on the floor of the Senate. I think what changes over time is what are the issues and what are the fault lines of that divisiveness? I think what is different today than in previous eras is we are now in a period of two parties that are more ideologically cohesive, and there's a party discipline that maybe did not exist in the past um, when the two major parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, were both split regionally and sometimes had very internal disagreements over important pieces of policy. So in that sense, you know, as a historian, you always find divisiveness, you always find conflict. It's just it changes how it manifests itself and what are the causes of it over time. Uh, before we get into some of the regional differences, which I think are fascinating and do really, de- you know, they absolutely define how the Senate functions, even in in some ways what we're still working with. The the incident that you referenced, the, uh, the, the, the California senator who was killed, this was a duel, correct? Yeah, so dueling culture was still very prevalent throughout the 19th century up till the eve of the Civil War. And California Senator David Broderick had spoken very strongly against the expansion of slavery. And he was called out by uh, the chief justice of the California state courts, uh, David Terry, for essentially turning his back on the Democratic Party and uh, challenged him to a duel. And uh, Senator Broderick died in that duel. And he's, uh, to this day, hopefully the last uh, and only senator to be uh, killed in a duel. Yeah, it is sort of, I mean, we could spend in, you know more than an hour just talking about some of these violent episodes. But I do want to get back to this idea of like regionality, too, and how that has helped define the Senate. 
Um, recently, Joe Biden, the former vice president, and the former senator from Delaware, got into a little bit of hot water talking about how he worked with uh, other you know, Democrats in, in the Senate in his early days who were segregationists. And this brought up some ugly parts of our history. And one of the things that you have, have uh, discussed, you know, with the newsroom recently was some of this collegiality was also predicated on the fact that the Senate would never move on civil rights, say. So it was easy to get along when you didn't deal with the most divisive issue in, in American culture. Yeah. And I think that is, has been a key part of the or was a key part of the Senate throughout the 20th century. I, I think Vice President Biden's statement would have really read unexceptional during that period, because while someone like Biden would have considered civil rights issues to be important, he also would have wanted to move on a lot of other issues. And just the fact of the day was that the Senate prided itself on its uh, the ability to maintain decorum, to maintain relationships in the Senate, to work together to create legislation that could appeal to more than just a bare majority. Uh, and, you know, with that, the specter of the filibuster and that at the time, 67 uh, vote threshold, that was just a fact of life in the Senate and being able to keep those relationships in order to reach that pr- threshold. And that bipartisanship has been key and central aspect of Senate life uh, throughout its history. And about about the filibuster, too, I mean, I think that in popular culture, at least, most people would associate the Senate with the filibuster. And this, you know, probably started, you know, post-World War II with Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. They have a film still or they have a, just a clip of Jimmy Stewart uh, performing a filibuster. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the filibuster. Right. So, I, I mean, from the very first meeting of the Senate in 1789, um, thanks to the diary of William McClay of Pennsylvania, he commented on the Virginians talking away the time in order to ensure that they didn't move on a piece of legislation. So senators have known from the beginning that there are strategic ways of talking the time away in order to block legislation. Um, With that said, things still got done. They still passed laws. But by the 1850s, the practice starts to become somewhat more prevalent, enough that they have to name it, and they choose the term filibuster. Um, the term filibuster comes from a Dutch word that meant freebooter uh, in Spanish, the filibusteros, which referred to piratical attacks on Caribbean islands at the time. So the idea that to talk away the time to be um, an obstructivist like that was considered to be you know, a piratical method of blocking action. So in, in the last 40 years, we've seen an acceleration of changes to the rules. I mean, in the 70s, the threshold is lowered from 67 to 60 to cut off debate. In in 2013, Harry Reid, uh, does, you know, lowers the threshold for considering district judges and 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 so forth. And now we've seen it all the way to the Supreme Court. It's still holding in place for legislation at this point, mm-hmm. at least. But there are also other ways you can get around it, like through the budget reconciliation process and so forth. So that it's always been this fluid situation, correct? I, yeah, I, I think um, you know, in the mid 20th century, starting in the the mid 1950s. Um, you know, the Senate of that era was defined by uh, the, the the powerful Southern Democrats and other members who had seniority and were able to sit on powerful committees. As you get a new influx of liberal senators from both parties, they start to question these norms that says that they have to take their time, 
um, and sit in the background, you know, watch but don't talk kind of thing. So that by the 1970s, they are forcing th- – they are – you know, really pushing for changes in Senate procedures and norms that give them more ability to make a difference right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and that starts in the late 1950s and continues into um, 1975 when the attempt to lower the fil- uh, the closure threshold, mm-hmm. they get it down to uh, to 60 votes, which is, you know, um, still quite high, but, you know, more achievable than what had uh, been up before. The 1964 Civil Rights Act, um, it needed 67 votes. And, you know, that's that's almost unheard of, I think, right. to achieve today. I, I was I was struck that the again the, the Senate is such a different place than like fifty, sixty years ago. I mean, we you know had up until the nineteen sixties. I mean, the vice president of the United States presiding over the over the proceedings of, of the Senate. That's almost unimaginable now that the vice president would be like sitting in the in the presiding officer's chair. But and so when did that change, and why did it change? So throughout American history. The vice president's main job was to preside over the Senate. That was his title. His salary uh, is paid out of the congressional appropriation, not the executive. Their main purpose was to sit in that chair and rule on points of order and to know the rules of the Senate. And that goes all the way back to the first vice president, John Adams. In the 20th century, after Richard Nixon serves as vice president under Eisenhower, that job starts to become more and more of a executive branch position where they're only coming back to the Senate for specific periods and sometimes maybe only to break tie votes, which is the most important power that the vice president has in the Senate chamber. And we've seen that in recent periods. Uh, Vice President Pence has been called on many more times this uh, Congress than his predecessors had to break tie votes because of how close the uh, parties are in 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 the Senate. But that used to be the primary job of a vice president. Speaking of changes to the institution, I mean, the office of the, the U.S. historian's office is a fairly recent creation, too. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's a, it's kind of weird to think because it's such an historical place, right? <laughs> but it's only been around since the 1970s also. Right. Talk, talk a little bit about that. So, I mean, I think the Senate has always valued its history. Senators have always seen themselves as being part of a long tradition. You know, they've had these these traditions like signing their names in their desks and things like that, recognizing themselves in a long lineage of, you know, statesmen. But in the 1970s, post-Watergate, there was really a sense that Congress wasn't getting the analysis that it should in relation to its role in the American political system. Scholarship had gotten very presidential heavy, and there was a, a sense among senators with you know historical bent that the Senate needed its own ability to ensure that its achievements and how it works gets covered by scholars. And so Majority Leader Mike Mansfield and Minority Leader Hugh Scott were both supportive of this, a bipartisan effort to pass uh, a resolution creating the historical office. It's another key part of our office and right from the very beginning dealt with the archives. In the 1970s, to be able to look at the records of a Senate committee, you had to get special permission from the chair. It was in the early 1980s when that process became much more open. Senate records open over a set amount of years now, um, unless there's any particular reason to close them. If you, as an historian, if you could talk to one senator who is no longer with us, say, we'll just cut it off uh, with uh, with no no living senators or no living former senators. I would probably want to talk to Wisconsin's Robert LaFollette, who was the governor of Wisconsin. He came to the Senate in 1906, and he took on the really powerful interests in his state 
And he did so by a sort of, you know, the idea is that he took on the party machines and the, the, the powerful interest by creating his own party machine, his own machine, basically, mm-hmm. so that he became governor and state legislatures, still uh, selected senators. He was elected to the Senate. And when he got here, he, he found an institution that had, you know, was already taking its hit in the public eye in terms of its ability to to address the real problems that the nation faced in the wake of industrialization. And he came in and was rather fearless in taking on the powerful Republican leaders of his era. He launched into long filibustering speeches. He was a kind of a thorn in the side of, uh, of fellow Republicans. One of his colleagues, John Spooner of Wisconsin, who was more of an old school Republican, you know, tried to get him kicked out, tried to get him kicked out of the party. He didn't even want him to be able to use the title of Republican. But La Follette and those other insurgent Republicans and Democrats of that era that really brought us into the progressive era, it would be really interesting to hear what did they find in the Senate? What did they think they could, what were the avenues they had for trying to change the system at the time? Um, because I think one of the most important things for understanding historical change is we understand that institutions constrain people, but some people come up and are able to push against those constraints and really affect important historical change. And I think he was one of those senators. Sometimes uh, using the term fun might be a little weird uh, when talking about the Senate. <laughs> but uh, what what is something fun or what is something kind of quirky about the Senate that uh, is, is just is something that everybody should know? People love to learn that there were bathtubs in the basement of the Capitol that were installed in the late 19th century. And it's a great story because it tells you a lot about just life, everyday life in the Senate. Um, especially at a time when being in the Senate was becoming really a um, a career for people. They would men they would come to the Senate and they would stay for decades. Uh, so it became very important. But when they came, um, you know, there still wasn't a lot of development in Washington D.C. They or running they st- water exactly. There was, uh, you know, Captain Montgomery Meigs who designed the Capitol extensions. One of his goals alongside. Um, building, designing the Capitol was to bring water to Washington, D.C. He built the Washington Aqueducts. And as part of that process, he wanted to bring water to the Capitol. Then they had the idea of, well, if we have water in the Capitol, maybe we should create bathing facilities because the boarding houses that senators were staying in uh, didn't didn't have this. So they ordered, uh, you know, three Carrera marble bathtubs and they had them installed in the basement. And it's, you know, you can still see them they now currently exist in what is an HVAC room, and <laughs> you only can see the remnants of what was described as a luscious, uh, luxurious um, bathing uh, bathing room uh, where you could go down before making a speech to freshen up in the you know the humid Washington summer, um, get a shave. Um, fun story about that is the page boys used to get tickets to the bathtub, and so they could use them. And sometimes they would sell them to tourists. You know, hey, go get a bath where the senators take their bath, take their baths. <laughs> um, and then the other re- the, re- the other fun thing about the bathtubs is that once they went out of use by the early 20th century, people forgot about them. We tend to take for granted that we pass on these things. Well, when they were looking to build um, the air conditioning in the in the Capitol in the 1930s, they knocked down a wall and they found these giant Carrera marble bathtubs and nobody had any clue what they were. <laughs> um, it took days of speculation in the newspaper for a former page to come forward and say, oh, I know what that is. I used to take baths in that tub and help senators out when they were getting ready for their big speeches. It's a great remnant of a time in the Capitol. Um, and I, I, it, they're really fun. 
Well, Daniel Holt, thank you so much for taking a little time to talk to political theater. Uh, we could go on uh, yes. for, for sure. There's a lot of history to cover, but I had a lot uh, of Gilded Age uh, stuff here to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a part two. Okay. I, I promise. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, anywhere. Just ask your smart home where you can get this podcast, Political Theater Podcast. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. Of course, or not on iTunes, but to rate us. There is no more iTunes. Uh, and of course, you're going to give us five stars because that's, that's what we are. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, we'll see you on another podcast. <laughs>